Uh, I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to travel to the book of Matthew. And we're going to look at a a possibly familiar passage of scripture to some of you, but I also uh, believe that there might be some, maybe this is your first time reading this. And my prayer is that it would minister to you in a powerful way like never before. But we're turning to Matthew chapter 27, and I'm going to begin in verse 15. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you are in the Bible app and want to follow along in the same version, Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 15. If you got it, say, I got it. If you need some more time, say, hold on. All right. Amen. Matthew 27, 15. And it reads, now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Messiah. He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Hmm. Why? Why? Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death. We and our children. Amazing to me that they spoke on behalf of their children. After that song that we just sang, how many of you know that the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and addeth no sorrow to it? God can break generational curses. But I can't believe they said this. Mm. In verse 26, or actually 25, and all the people yelled back, we will take responsibilities for his death, we and our children. Verse 26, so Pilate released Barabbas to them He ordered Jesus to be flogged, or in the New King James, it says scourged, with a lead 
tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. These next couple of verses is the crux of what I want to talk to you about tonight. This is what got me going with this message. Verse 27, some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him and mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. That's my Jesus. That's my Savior they're talking about. I want to talk to you tonight, and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me, about the subject matter, meekness. Meekness. What does it mean to be meek? You know, as I read this passage of Scripture, as a man, the Scripture ministered to me. Because Jesus was powerful. He was strong. He had everything at heaven's disposal to be able to do a myriad of different things in this moment. But he restricted himself. He held his tongue. He held back, even though he had the power to cause damage. Meekness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for everyone that is gathered here tonight. I believe that they are not here by accident. Neither am I. But I ask, Lord, for your grace, speak through me as your servant and minister to everyone that is here, everyone that is watching. Change us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. As we gear up and get ready for this next week, and it actually starts on Sunday, it has been dubbed as the Holy Week or the Passion Week. I would venture to say some of you in this room saw the male Gibson portrayal of Jesus in the Passion of the Christ. Very difficult movie to watch. Even before I get into the crux of my message, may I submit to you that as graphic and as detailed the final hours of Jesus' life were in that movie, it still did not come close because the Bible says you could not recognize Jesus He was marred so bad you couldn't recognize him. And even in that movie, I could notice Jim Caviezel who played the role of Jesus. And it was a great depiction, don't get me wrong. But I want you to understand that your Jesus went through much more. And there is no film, there is no picture that could accurately depict what he went through, what he was feeling on the inside. As he was enduring this trial. But as we look at the Holy Week, while the exact order of events during the Holy Week is debated by biblical scholars, this timeline that I want to 
present to you is an approximate outline of the major events of the most holy days on the Christian calendar. It starts off on day one, which was the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, and you can read about this in all of the Gospels. Some of you might remember that he sent his disciples into the town to inquire about a donkey, and he retrieved that animal, and he rode on that donkey into Jerusalem as people were waving palm branches, and they laid it down before him. But some of these same people would later on be the very ones that were asking for him to be crucified. But he fulfilled prophecy. Day two is when Jesus cleared the temple, which was on a Monday. Most of you might remember that Jesus was quite offended when he went into the temple because there were some corrupt money changers that had taken the house of the Lord and had made it a den of thieves. And we saw a side of Jesus that we weren't accustomed to, but he was zealous for his Lord's house. And he wanted to make sure that the Lord's house was a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place where God was exalted. But they had lost sight of that. Day three, which is interesting, Tuesday, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and he has a discourse with his disciples about end time events and also the temple and the future events that would follow. Day four, Wednesday, the Bible doesn't say what the Lord did on Wednesday of Passion Week. Scholars speculate that after two exhausting days in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples spent this day resting in Bethany in anticipation of the Passover. Day five, you have the Passover and the Last Supper. These are all recorded in the Gospels as well. Remember, the Passover was a celebration of when the Israelites were about to come out of Egyptian bondage. And they were to prepare a meal in haste as they got ready to leave. And some of you might remember in the book of Exodus, they were told to take a lamb without a spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And this lamb was to be kept for 14 days. Very interesting to me. God, why would you have the Israelites keep this lamb for 14 days? This means that the children had a chance to get to know the lamb. This means that it's possible that the lamb might have come inside the house and lay with the father or with the family. They had grown close to this lamb. But then on the 14th day, they had to sacrifice this lamb and take the blood of the lamb on the top of the door and on the bottom so that when the death angel came through the land, when he saw the blood, he would cross over. But it's interesting to me, Lord, why would you have them keep the lamb for 14 days? The reason why is because God wanted us to understand what he would go through in having to sacrifice his own son. But it was the Passover. It was also the Last Supper. It was the opportunity that Jesus had a chance to make an example of what it means to be a servant when he washed his disciples' feet. And he also established the Lord's Supper. Even though he hadn't died on the cross yet, Even though he hadn't established the new covenant, this would be something that would be done on a regular basis after his resurrection in remembrance of what he did. On day six, which is where our text is derived from today, 
This was the trial, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial on Good Friday, which is coming up. Saturday, he was in the tomb, day seven, but then day eight came. It was Resurrection Sunday, and Jesus came out of that grave, and he rose, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And watch this. We are seated with him in heavenly places. For those who have received Christ, all of the benefits, all of the rights and privileges, I am seated with him in heavenly places. And so there is an authority that I am called to walk in as a born again believer. And there are things that I am not supposed to put up with because my Jesus paid the price so that I could be set free. But it's time for us to exercise our faith. It's time for us to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. It's time for us to believe for restoration in our marriages, to believe for restoration in our land, to be willing to be a soul winner for Jesus Christ, to plant seeds, to water seeds, and to watch God bring forth the increase. Am I speaking to anybody tonight? What's more important than pinpointing each event is understanding Jesus all the while was fulfilling prophecy. He was fulfilling prophecy. As I prayed and asked the Lord for guidance on this passage that we just read, I immediately was reminded of Matthew 5, 5. And in this passage of scripture, you've probably heard it. Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The definition of meekness, and listen to this very carefully. Listen to this. The definition of meekness is essentially an attitude or quality of heart whereby a person is willing to accept and submit without resistance to the will and desire of someone else. In the case of Christians, this is God. It's a heart change. Though when we sometimes give our life to Christ, as Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. There is something that must transpire within your heart. In fact, the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 3 that we were saved through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that came inside and did the cleansing work and he remained on the inside of us so that we could live a life that was pleasing to God. Are you with me? Jesus is our perfect example of meekness. By leaving, I love this, by leaving heaven's riches, limiting himself in such a way to become human. In other words, he didn't cling to his rights. Yes, married couple, he didn't cling to his rights. I know we've been on the topic of discussion of relationship repair. He didn't cling to his rights. He wasn't taking score. He wasn't coming home and saying, I do this and I do that. What do you do? He wasn't clinging to his rights. following his father's directives at every turn and allowing himself 
And yes, I repeat this, allowing himself to endure the most excruciating trial, this man exemplified what it means to be meek. He exemplified it to the core. What can we glean from Jesus about meekness? What can we walk away with our marching orders as we leave this place? Point number one, a meek person looks to the reward despite their present suffering. Let me say that again. A meek person looks to the reward despite their present suffering. You know, I thought to myself, Jesus did not say a word as this conversation was going back and forth about who should be released. How many of you in your life have ever been wrongfully accused or you were talked about when it wasn't even your fault? Maybe you experienced a bit of pain and suffering when you did nothing. Jesus absolutely did nothing to deserve this cruel treatment. And yet, they preferred to release a murderer. They preferred to release a man that was less than perfect. And instead, keep Jesus in custody. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. COVID-19 has no hold on you as a Christian. To live is Christ and to die is gain. This was a passage of scripture that the Lord deposited in my spirit from the onset of this pandemic and reminded me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no purgatory. There is no waiting place. There is no future remediation of sins that needs to be done to save me. When Jesus says it is finished, it is finished. And if I were to die, I would be in the very presence of Jesus. And if he were to come back in the rapture, I would be with him as well. So what troubles could come my way to be able to separate me from the love of God? This is where we need faith. And for all of you that are watching, I don't want to make light of the situation. I don't want to not seem sympathetic to what some may be going through, but there comes a point in your life, I'm not afraid of dying anymore. Death no longer has its hold on me, and if that is the tool that the enemy is going to use to keep me in bondage, I will not have it anymore because I know who I am. Do we believe Jesus or not? Do we believe what he said? Do we believe what he did? The reason why I worship him is because I recognize he could have done so much in that moment, but he withheld. He was meek in that moment. And the reason why he was meek and the reason why he withheld himself from doing certain things is because he looked towards the future. He was thinking about you. Maybe you may not think this way, but I'm here to tell you, I believe he was thinking about Brandon. I believe I was on his mind 
Because he said, even before the foundation of the world, I knew you. Even when you were in your mother's womb, I was the one that crafted you. I know you're lying down and you're getting up. I'm well acquainted with all of your griefs and all of your struggles. Man, I feel like preaching tonight. God knows. He knows us. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This was his passion. This was his joy. This is what drove him. This is what kept him. This is what I believe he was thinking about in that moment when he was experiencing excruciating pain and when he was being accused of things that he was not, he thought to himself, oh, but for the joy. If I have to experience this, if I have to go through this so that you could be set free, so that you could be healed, so that you could receive a right mind, I'll do it. Because I want you into my family. You're my son. Can I remind you of something? And this kind of goes back to the message that I preached previously. Your identity is in Christ. You are complete in him. In Colossians 2.9, it says, In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. That means before I'm a pastor, before I'm a father, before I work at this job or I have this or I try to, like, because we try to identify ourselves in so many different ways, but your first Identity and your only identity and everything else flows out of this is you are a son. And you are a daughter. You are a son of the Most High. You are a daughter of the Most High. Let me tell you something. In John 1.12, it says, As many as received him, he gave the power to become children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Don't shoot me down. We are all God's creation, and he created us all. But it is not until you accept the lordship of Jesus Christ that you become a child of God with all the privileges and the rights that come with that. And there is so much that your heavenly father wants to bestow upon you. There are so many blessings that he wants to rein in on your life, namely his presence. Turning 40 years old recently, I've been reflecting a lot. And one thing that I've been reflecting upon, I just want your peace. I just want you. You're all that I desire. You're all that I need. I appreciate the things that you've blessed me with. I appreciate my wife, my children. I appreciate this opportunity that you've given me to minister to your people. But I want you. I want you, God. I want to be close to you. I want to hear your voice. See, that was the paradigm shift in my life is when I stopped focusing on not sinning and just pursuing him. We know that sin keeps us from God. Not that he moves out of his position in our lives, but we become separated from him because of our behavior. But here's the reality. God is still there. He's still there and he's calling you to come home. He knew you before he chose you. 
He already had proactive mercy. He already had proactive grace. He knew what he was getting into. But the joy that was set before him is what caused him to endure the cross. The more and more I counsel and work with people, it's sad to say, but there are so many who were never told, I love you. Growing up, I'm proud of you. You're going to make something of your life. You have giftings. You have callings. You're special in the Lord's sight. He knew you. Instead, people were told, you'll never amount to nothing. I'll never celebrate you. I'll never give words of gratitude, maybe because you're doing things that I wasn't able to do. But I'm here to tell you that your father rejoices over you with singing. He thinks about you. You're on his mind. He neither sleeps nor slumbers, but he gives his beloved rest. He's watching over me. He knows my thoughts, even from afar off. He knows my weaknesses. Is this helping somebody tonight? Romans 8, 18 declares, Paul, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Jesus is our example. Point number two, the meek are not weak, but operate in power knowing how and when to use it. The meek are not weak, but operate in power knowing how and when to use it. All of us have been given certain responsibilities, certain powers from the Lord to be able to do certain exploits for him. But it's important that we use our God-given abilities in the context that he wants it to be used in. That we don't get ahead of ourselves recognizing that a man or woman's gift will make room for you and bring you before great men and understand that the Lord giveth and he can also take away. If I can be honest with you, sometimes the Lord reminds me of where he brought me from. Sometimes when I am ministering or preparing a message or when I'm talking to somebody, sometimes he will allow me to stutter again so that he reminds me, don't forget where I brought you from. Don't forget that it was me that put this in you. It was me that saved you. It was me that took you from here and placed you there. And the same is true of you here in this room. What are your reminders that God is the one that made this happen? As I think about the scourging that he went through, it's interesting because Pilate thought that by scourging him, if he was beaten enough to the point where it was difficult to look at, perhaps they may not want to crucify him. But what Pilate didn't factor in was that Jesus knew what he was stepping into. And he had a assignment that he was called to fulfill, even though it was difficult, even though it was taxing, even though people were, were being used to fulfill this assignment, Jesus allowed himself to go through this. He knew what he was doing. A scourge consisted of a rope with metal balls, bones, and metal spikes. The amount of scourges by the Romans was determined by the person's mood. Let me say that again. The amount of scourges or flogging by the Romans 
was determined by the person's mood. Can you imagine as Jesus was being beaten, the mood that he had at that moment? It was actually an old Roman law tradition that said 40 lashes were a death sentence. In Roman times, it was deemed that if a flogger were to appropriately administer a punishment, he should be able to kill a man within 40 lashes. Depending on the circumstances, if he failed to kill a man in 40 lashes, the flogger himself would face death. This was to ensure the flogger would not hold back in meeting out the punishment. Imagine being told to flog a friend or a fellow slave, and if you haven't killed him by the 40th lash, you would be put to the sword. Crazy. Using this same warped, twisted logic, the Romans determined 39 lashes shouldn't kill a person, so that was the most you could give a person without a sentence of death by flogging. Seeing how Jesus was to be crucified, the Romans were merciful and only gave him 39 lashes, or perhaps the flogger was fearful of a death sentence if Jesus survived the 40th lash. How many of you know if it was 50, he would have survived it? If it was a hundred, our Jesus would have went the distance because he was on a mission. He had a passionate pursuit to redeem a people that were dead, that were lost. He would have done it. But don't come and tell me that you were being merciful and putting 39 lashes on this man. They used what was called a cat of nine tails. And it was a rope that had sharp edges on the end so that when it hit the back of the victim, it would literally rip the skin off of the flesh. And this happened 39 times. And they wanted to make sure that every part of the body was covered. Again, my mind just went here. What were you thinking about, Jesus? What was going through your mind as you were experiencing this pain? He keeps, he keeps taking me back to Hebrews. It was the joy, Brandon. It was the joy of receiving you into my family. It was the joy of saving humanity. May I submit to you, everyone in this room, this is why we worship. This is why we come to church. This is why we endure difficulty and trials and setbacks in our life. Because if Jesus could do all of that for me, why can't I not forgive you? If Jesus could do all of that for me, why can't I believe that God can restore this marriage? If Jesus could do all of that for me, why can I not believe that even though I received a negative doctor's report, if he went the distance and did all of that for me, why can he not heal me? Why can he not set me free? Why can he not bring about victory in my life? If Jesus did all of that for me, I am never alone. I am like I'm in the palm of his hands. No one can pluck me out. No matter what devil, no matter what enemy I face in this life, if he did all of that, this pales in comparison. For I consider that the present sufferings, they're not worthy. 
to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Though my outward man is perishing, my inward man is being renewed day by day. For we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. I'm waiting on my God to work. He understood the meaning of Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, which says, A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He understood that my beef is not with these people that are doing this to me. There is an enemy that is using them here in this moment. This, my friends, is how we should approach every conflict. Who is my real enemy? Is it this person in front of me that I am fighting against? Is my real issue with them? We haven't talked for 20 years over one issue. Is it because of them or is it because of the enemy who is trying to deceive me? Keep in mind, this was the enemy's plot all along. He comes what? To steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus said that I've come that you may have life. Why does he want to come and steal? He wants to steal your worship. I'm not so much concerned, even though I may do this, the devil may attack your body. But where I get confused and where I have to kind of retreat is when you keep worshiping God, even though I'm attacking you. Even though I've sent all of my reinforcements, when you keep worshiping God, when you keep coming to church, when you keep getting in the word of God, you confuse the enemy because he is trying to steal your worship. He tried to steal my worship when I lost my father, November 22nd, and couldn't go and visit him for COVID. I'm here to tell you, he almost stole my worship, but I was here to tell you guys, I will worship the Lord anyhow, because I know where my father is, and I know that I will see him one day. He may try to steal your worship because of a job situation. Maybe you were furloughed. Maybe you were laid off. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you're at your wit's end sitting at the kitchen table trying to figure out how you're going to make it. Understand that he shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Because if he went through all of that, if he became poor so that we could become rich, why can't he not provide for you? He will take care of you. Last but not least, and I'll ask the worship team to come. A meek person is secure in the one they have placed their trust. A meek person is secure in the one they have placed their trust. Who is your trust in? Is your trust in the stock market? Is your trust in your husband? Is your trust in your wife? Is your trust in the president is your trust in your job who has the final say in your life he is the one i'm secure in you god i don't have to put up a front 
I don't have to try to get in good with somebody to try to get a promotion on my job. If you've blessed me with this job, then I know that you can open doors that no man can shut. I don't have to be jealous. I don't have to be envious. I don't have to operate like the world and try to be conniving to get my way. Lord, you will bring it to pass and I will wait on you. I will commit my works unto you and see you move in this situation. I'm speaking to somebody. Matthew 27 through 31 is where my train of thought, as I said, began as I was preparing this message. A regiment was a division of Roman legion containing about 200 men. Let me say that again. A regiment was a division of the Roman legion containing about 200 men. I want you to begin to picture the scene as Jesus was being mocked and ridiculed. There were 200 men that were at this place. Imagine the scene if we can. These men spat on Jesus. They put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they put a reed stick in his hand as a, as a scepter. In absolute disrespect, they knelt down before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They did this for some time. What they didn't realize is that there would come a day where they would have to do that. Because the Bible says that there's come a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But I'm here to tell you, we don't have to wait for that to happen, Jesus. I'm willing to get on my knees right now and proclaim that you are my Lord, that you are my Savior, that you are my King, that you are my Master, that my life is yours. And as we sang that song, I was overcome with emotion because, Lord, allow my life to be spent. It's not my own. Allow my life to be spent, God, for you because my life is not my own. I was bought at a price and I willingly submit to Jesus because like a true husband, like a true husband, he loved me and sacrificed everything. And all the ladies said, amen. Find a husband who loves you like Christ loves the church. At that moment, I think of another scripture. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is where the apostle Paul is dealing with the conflict that existed within the church of Philippi and recalls what Jesus went through as a wonderful example that we should follow. Listen to his words. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let this mind that was in Jesus be in you. Let this mind be in you. What is it that God is ministering to you right now? 
What is he telling you to go and do? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to call that you haven't talked to in years? What steps do you need to take to get serious about restoring that relationship? May I submit to you that there are no perfect marriages. And some of you have been married a lot longer than my wife and I. And there's a lot of wisdom that you can bestow upon us and we receive it from you. But can I tell you this? We all need maintenance. We all need counseling. We're so quick to get oil changes. We're so quick to do maintenance on our house. I'm sure on a beautiful day like this, a lot of you are outside tending to your grass or tending to your flowers. But what about your soul? What about your relationships? What about your relationship with God? Has it been neglected? Have you lost your passionate pursuit of God? May I submit to you in all transparency, even as a pastor, the temptation can be for us to get so busy doing the work of the ministry that we neglect the God of the ministry. And I always feel God's gentle nudge and tug. Brandon, I want to spend time with you. Not just when you're preparing a sermon, but I want to spend time with you every day. I want to talk to you. I want to speak words of life over you. I want to give you assignments. I want to give you things to do that I've equipped you to do. And this is not just the call of a pastor. This is the call of a born again believer. There is an assignment that God has put on your life and we don't have time to fool around because the days are evil and the time is short and we need to win the lost. There are people in your community that need to hear about Jesus. There are family members that need you to set the example of what it means to finally submit to the Lord and to be willing to go the distance in following Jesus with your whole heart. No matter if they ridicule you, no matter if they call you a holy roller, no matter what they say, if Jesus can go through it, so can I. I'm not going to shrink back from my responsibility anymore. Will you stand with me here in this place? Just worship the Lord with me in this place. Close your eyes. Father, we worship. If you're watching from home, just begin to worship the Lord. If you're able, stand to your feet. Lift your hands to heaven. God, we worship you in this place. We thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sins. God, if we've gotten in the mode of being complacent or being apathetic and being just not concerned about what's important to you, God, I pray that you would humble us in your presence. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart and a boldness to win those who don't know you, God. I pray, Lord, that we would pursue you with all of our hearts. Lord, if we've said, if we've done anything that's been contrary to your will, may we submit that to you now and ask for your forgiveness. We know that you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sins. We know that you are our savior, that you're our anchor, that you are our strong tower, that you are the one that is our advocate before the father and you plead our case. We worship you, God. Have your way in this place. Have your way in this place.